Our goal this morning is to go verse by verse through Mark chapter 1 up to verse 35. This is going to happen on pages 836 and 837 of your Pew Bible. Um, not quite the full chapter. There's a number of things that can be said about Mark. I'm not going to say as much as a whole in this service as I did in the last service. But if you want to supplement what you learn in this service, you can always listen to the first service sermon online. Uh, there is some different content there, especially talking about Mark versus Matthew and Luke. I'm not going to do that as much here. Um, but one of the things that does stand out in Mark is that he has long chapters. And there's only 16 chapters in the book, but they are, they are, they are long. <laughs> uh, and not only long, they are full. Uh, every sentence in Mark's gospel could be closer to a paragraph and often is a paragraph in, say, Matthew uh, with more information and whatnot. And yet, even though Mark doesn't say as much about individual events, he does say a lot more about certain select events. He goes into greater detail and he manages to pack, again, a vast story into a very kind of short and shotgun blast kind of book, which he says is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we want to we want to define that word here this morning from the text as we go forward. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, Mark is going to be telling us what that is. And in short, the way the word was used most anciently doesn't have as much to do with, say, the forgiveness of sins. That's how Lutherans think of that word. It has more to do with a written-down history of the life of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the life of Jesus Christ. And everything that that means for all the world to know and believe, including, of course, that he died for you, that he paid for you, and he's forgiven your sins, that you're with him right now, seated in heaven as he ascended over all things, that he comes again to give you a new body that will never die, all of that. But the gospel is, again, that this man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and lived in real history. And Mark's going to tell you this in the most exciting way he possibly can, and in a way that gives a flavor, a spice, uh, that is, is quite distinct from how, I would say, most American Christians think of Jesus himself. So kind of the big heads up and even a little bit, why are we doing this here at St. Paul is because I want to strip away uh, the boring, effeminate, flannel graph, Jesus, my shepherd who loves me, little sheep. And there's nothing else to Christianity but how much he's so nice. I want to strip that away with the Bible's text about the son of man who comes with authority to cast out demons and bring to its culmination the final conflict that's been set up on earth for ages and ages, now revealed to be finished in the mystery of his glorious death for all mankind. That's more interesting to me than like, see Jesus, love Jesus, love Jesus, love, right? It, it, that's not what the Bible really is about. Is the Bible about love? Yes, but it is a grave and serious kind of love, not a cheap trick, uh, not candy to be sold in the marketplace, indeed, holy. And, and that's one of the other things Mark is going to just make Jesus appear to be, because he is. He's different. He's holy. He's set apart. And uh, he's so righteous 
that he might even look a little crazy. Uh, but again, like we talked about last week, the crazy is in us. Right? When you come to a sane man and you say, that guy is crazy, that means you're crazy. Right? So Jesus is going to challenge our crazy a little bit by forcing us to ask, what is righteousness? What is holiness? Uh, again, what is the gospel? So chapter 1, verse 1, sitting right there on page uh, 836, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, so the gospel has a beginning. That's interesting. That's not the way other documents in the Bible talk about it. That's one point. Second point, okay, so the gospel of Jesus Christ is what? What is it? Is it that he is the Son of God? It goes on and says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. That's a change of topic. That's a reference point. So what's the gospel? He just introduced it. He said it's the beginning of it, but he didn't tell you what it is, unless the gospel is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. Like that's the beginning of the gospel, right? That Jesus of Nazareth is not a man alone. He's a man born of woman, but not of man. Right? He is a man born of woman, of the Holy Spirit. And so the fact that he is the son of God, that alone is the good news. Forgiveness of sins hinges on this, rests on this, right? Your communion with him rests on this. Salvation of your loved ones in Jesus and belief in him as the way to heaven. It all rests on this. He is the son of God. Now, this beginning is also the beginning of the story, which starts with not Jesus, but those who came before him and pointed forward to him. Namely, the prophets of the Old Testament. And now he's going to quote one. He's going to quote one talking about the last prophet to come before Jesus comes. Now, that's what's written in Isaiah, verse 2. Behold, I send my messenger. Think of that as the final prophet. I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So all the prophets of old say there's going to come a special guy with a special role right before Messiah the king comes. And look, verse 4, not wasting much time, John is the guy. Who is John? You don't know. hasn't told you that. Mark's assuming you have heard a little bit, though. He thinks you're a Christian already as you read the book. I mean, of course, a non-Christian can read it. But he thinks when he says John, you know who he's talking about. What he wants you to see, though, is that John is Elijah. John is the final Old Testament prophet come to usher in uh, Jesus the King. John appears doing this by baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There's a marvelous rabbit we can chase there in terms of what is the difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus, Christian baptism, what's the difference? Uh, that's a good 15-minute conversation we won't have this morning, but, but it's there in this text, just so you're aware of it. Um, but uh, John indeed comes baptizing, and all of the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Uh, this is quite the stir. So here I can tell you this about John's baptism. It was weird because what it was, was a Jewish ritual to make non-Jews into the closest thing to Jew you can become. Because you can't become a Jew. You can worship their God and you can almost become one. And the way you do that is baptism. 
And he goes and he takes that and he starts giving it to Jews. Well, they don't need that. Yeah. And then a bunch of them start going out to him. Crowds, masses of people are going out to him. Now, it's important to know that at this time in history, there's more than one false messiah and kind of zealot military leader rebellionist that shows up in this territory. So big crowds going out to see weird people. It's kind of, you don't have TV. What else are you going to do? Let's go see the crazy prophet. Maybe they'll kill him. It's not quite like that every Friday, right? But, but there is some of that in the air here a little bit. And they're all going out to see John. And he is stating boldly with his dress that he is a prophet. He was clothed with camel's hair and wore a level sash around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, basically a sort of fasting and a, a sort of a penitent life of wearing poverty on purpose, very much in the image of Elijah himself, whose mantle of camel's hair, you might remember, gets thrown onto Elisha as Elijah's taken up into paradise and becomes like Moses' staff, where Elisha can use this camel's hair, hairy cloak to part streams and things, right? So, well, here's a guy wearing one. Right in front of everyone, and he's saying, "Y'all got to get baptized, even though you're Jewish." And then, verse seven, he preached, "After me comes he who is mightier than I." Isn't that what Isaiah said? There's going to be a messenger coming to prepare the way. That's what he's doing. After me is he who is mightier than I. I'm a prophet in the vesture of Elijah. Guess what? That's not saying much, because for him. The strap of his sandal, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie it. Who cares that I'm a prophet of God? Big deal. I'm just a poor, miserable sinner beside this guy. I have come, verse 9, excuse me, verse 8, and baptized with water. Well, there's a distinction, by the way, between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. John's baptism was with water only. Uh, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with water the Holy Spirit, a bold and proclaim, uh, profound claim uh, that the Messiah is almost here, that I am his witness, and when he comes, he will pour out God on you people. <laughs> now, that's, that's a big thing for him to say there, uh, that the promised end of the ages is about to show up, and tied up in this is some other new baptism that will involve the Holy Spirit's entering into mankind in a new way. I mean, it's quite the setup. We're only eight verses in. If you ran and looked at Matthew, you'd find out it's somewhere around like the son of Solomon, the son of Rehoboam, the son of blah, blah, on and on, just a genealogy. And here Mark has already got us through and to the baptism of Jesus. Verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So as long, along with all of the various crowds going out to see this wild man uh, in the desert shouting about Herod's bad marriages, uh, Jesus shows up there too. And just like no other Jew really needs Jewish baptism, Jesus uh, doesn't need any such thing as this. But the whole story of him arguing with John the Baptist is just not even here. That's all from the Gospel of Matthew, which is fine. That means it happened. But uh, notice Mark just doesn't mind that much. He doesn't care that much about this. He just wants you to know Jesus came to be baptized. Verse 10, he came up out of the water. 
And immediately he saw the heavens being torn asunder. It says open, but asunder. Uh, and the Spirit, that is God, the Holy Spirit, the one that was promised to come, descending on him uh, uh, like a dove. And then on top of this, a voice shouts out of heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Again, we could spend like good, good hour to three hours setting up the baptism of Jesus text from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and studying what words are the same, because there's like a nugget that they all say, right? and then what's different, and trying to ask why, and all this kind of stuff. Um, all I really want you to see here is how what, what jumps out about Mark's baptism account is that it's from Jesus' perspective. The other accounts tend to be from John or from the crowd's perspectives. Yeah. But here it is Jesus who he comes up, he sees heaven open, and the voice says, not he is my beloved son, but you are. You are my beloved son. Now, for the purpose of the story, right, the beginning of the good news of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, is that this guy, John, foretold of old, came preaching, be baptized, because the end of the world's about to be here. Jesus shows up and God himself says, that's the guy. That's my guy. Right there. That's the beginning, again, of the gospel of Jesus, how Jesus interfaces with John. Now, from that beginning, we move into the rest of the story, which is that the Holy Spirit is uh, wild, wild. Uh, he blows wherever he wishes, and you not know, know not where. You cannot stop him. You cannot force him. And we see it here, and that as he descends on Jesus, when you take away all the rest of the story, you already know he descends on Jesus, and the next instant, this spirit is hurling Jesus. Uh, the word's kind of weak here. The spirit immediately drove him out. I mean, think like I saw you know, Satan fall like lightning out of heaven drive him out. Uh, he was hurled from the presence of John out into the wilderness uh, 40 days. 40 days to be tempted by Satan. We could go to two or three Old Testament stories on the number 40 and spend a good hour to three on each one of them. Uh, understanding what does the word 40 mean? What does the number mean? The number four, the earth, the number 10 completion. So things that are in 40s in the Bible tend to be fully for the whole earth. So if he's going to suffer 40 days in the wilderness, he's suffering fully for the whole earth, right? Uh, that's there. You could, you could pull a whole bunch out. But what I want you to see is how short it is. <laughs> Just this section. We're still in chapter one. It's like chapter four in Matthew. It's like chapter four, right? Uh, we're still in chapter one, and he doesn't even have what Lucifer says. There's no, you know, every man lives from the, the word of God and bread and stones. None of that. It's just that the spirit drives him out to the wilderness. He's in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Now, the angels show up in, in Matthew's gospel, but the wild animals, wait a minute. You don't tell me about the, the battle of wits and word between the Satan and the Son of Man in the wilderness, but you tell me that there were some like jackals or cows there or something, right? Like, what does that mean, Mark? Why are you inserting that and removing the other stuff? And uh, I, I think the answer here myself is indeed jackals. Um, I, I think Mark wants you to see the whole temptation event 
like in an instant as a very scary, bad place where almost everything was against Jesus, except there were angels there ministering to him. Right? And so to see that being driven even by the Holy Spirit out to face the devil is like the beginning of God's rejection of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here, go fight that demon, son. Get out of the house. Go. Right? Um, that has begun right, in this moment as Jesus goes to be tempted. Again, wild animals, probably like a dark and stormy night kind of thing. They're prowling around, but the angels are there ministering to him. Angels will be interesting. There'll be a few key angels in this book, and then there'll be quite a few fallen angels in this book. Um, that's coming back here in a moment. But now, after John was arrested, verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So now we got that word gospel back for the first time since verse 1 where we were told the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God, that's the beginning. But now uh, Jesus himself is going to preach or proclaim this gospel. And when he says it, it's, it's not the way that Lutherans normally say it. Okay? Lutherans normally say the gospel something like, Jesus died for you. Or, or maybe Jesus loves you. That's getting pretty weak, really, but, but we'll say it that way. Um, uh, we'll, we'll maybe say something like, uh, Jesus has forgiven your sins. Now, all of these are ultimately true. These aren't untrue. It's just more than one way to talk about the good news of who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God. And the way Jesus himself started doing that was by saying this next thing. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what Jesus thinks is the good news. So the time is fulfilled. What's that mean? It means the end of the world is here. That's the first part of Jesus' good news in Mark. The end of the world is here. Second, the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, what that means is that uh, I'm the king. Not, not me, Jonathan, but you know Jesus. I'm the king, he says. And in me, the king, all of God's reign for all eternity is just standing right in front of you. So repent, he says. Next thing, that's not the gospel now, right? The gospel is the end of the world has come and Jesus is the king. Repent is a response to the gospel, an imperative, a command. I don't know. It's something that I hope you want to do. <laughs> repent and believe the gospel. Believe that the son of God is here at the end of the world to be our king. And there you have uh, what Jesus was preaching as um, he entered into, again, Galilee, from Nazareth. What happens next? Verse 16, again, proclaiming that he is here as the kingdom, right? He is, verse 16, passing along the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Uh, three sentences, whole story. The next part of the paragraph is kind of the same story again with two more brothers. And we will look at it verse by verse, but let's just keep this first part together. So he's out there proclaiming that he is the kingdom. 
He sees two guys who, does he know them? Uh, maybe by sight, we know from other Gospels, they are followers of John the Baptist. So they've probably seen or been around Jesus before. Um, but they are, they're fishermen, which is a common trade in Galilee. And it's still a common trade today in many places. A way to make a living is to go and catch fish. Not so much fly fishing uh, out in the great mountains, you know, with the, the light shimmering around you everywhere, but more by dragging a really heavy net through sometimes rough seas. And that indeed uh, is, is what happened even in the Sea of Galilee. It's not the, not the northeastern Atlantic in winter, um, but it can be a pretty rough and choppy place. People died there uh, in the water uh, with regularity. That's what these guys do for a living. And, and Jesus now again uh, says to them, follow me. Like, stop doing what you're doing. Follow me. Uh, an interesting aside, make of this little bit what you will. Uh, in the ancient world of Rab rabbinic Judaism, uh, you never invited someone to be your disciple, ever. Instead, people asked you if they could be your disciple. So no one called anyone ever, follow me and I'll teach you about Torah. It's just not the way it was done. It's the other way around. You might go up to some guy and you're like, I've noticed. You know, Torah, may I be your disciple, Rabbi, may I be my teacher. Um, that happened with regularity. A whole culture was built around that. But nobody said, no, 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 you and you follow me now. We're going to do this thing. And that, that was not the way it went. So there's something really bold here in Jesus doing this. Yeah. But uh, the fact that they leave him immediately as well, or, or leave the nets immediately, that they don't even, they don't even hesitate. There's, there's power in that idea. Uh, we could certainly all ask Jesus, Deo Valente. May we have the will to respond as quickly to your word and call, dear Jesus, as Peter and Andrew responded to your call to follow you. You know, it's a great prayer. That's a good thing to ask for. Um, I will make you fishers of men. That's, that's a fascinating one right there. Where does that come from? Why uh, does Jesus have a hankering for fishing for men? And uh, I, I've said this some places, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this idea, but it's pretty important. I'm kind of convinced that most of the really juicy stuff that Jesus says, um, it's from the Old Testament. Like it may not be a direct quote, but it's always a reference. He's, he's not here giving a new word. He's come with the old word, just speaking it more clearly removing all of the dross that we add on top of it because of the stubbornness of our hearts. So Jesus uh, takes this idea of fishermen, I believe. Now again, I, I'm too new at this answer to tell you I think this is true for good, but I, I do think this is true. I think he pulls this answer from the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah promises that he is going to send upon the people Fishermen and hunters, they go together, fishermen and hunters. And his promise of sending fishermen and hunters in Jeremiah appears to be about sending good men who will tell the truth in a wicked world. So for Jesus to come and say, I will make you fishers of men, if he's indeed referencing that, he's, he's claiming to start fulfilling Jeremiah's prophecies right here as well. And again, the idea is going to be later 
The kingdom of God is like a net being dragged through the sea, and the fisherman's dragging that net. He's pulling the word of God. He's just shouting it to the rooftops, right? And that net's going to pick up good fish and bad fish, but the good fish are the ones God is after, and frankly, that's you. That's what the net is there to do, is to pick you up as a fish redeemed by Christ. All right, it's probably enough on that. We could spend, again, any three verses in Mark 1, we could spend an hour on. We could, with all the references and how packed all of this is. Uh, Next, he goes a little further, verse 19. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. So now you got Peter, James, and John, kind of a well-known trio being called with one more. Notice four, the number of the earth again, uh, of brother Andrew. Um, Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Uh, So there's, there's not even a moment's hesitation in recognizing that this guy is different, right? He's different. He's already beginning to cause a bit of a stir, and now he's appointed these young, zealous, again, John the Baptist listening uh, Jewish men. Uh, They want Christianity. They want the Old Testament faith. They want to be piously trusting in the law of Moses. And so when they see him made flesh, he says, follow me. They say, hallelujah. And they do. Uh, They then go together as a group. I mean, are there more of them now? Maybe, but at least these five, if you add Jesus, they went into Capernaum. That's on the Sea of Galilee. It's a place Jesus will often use as a home base uh, for branching out to go other places. It's a fairly big settlement. That's probably why. They go to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So Sabbath synagogue, it's like Sunday church, but on Saturdays, it was pretty common throughout the world. Then everybody would get together. The rabbis, who weren't always fully paid positions, uh, would teach based upon the texts and the readings that were appointed for the day. A lot of things not unlike the way that we still do it today. But they're, they're there in this place, and it's a pretty big synagogue. Uh, don't think like five people, right? Um, it's at least as big as, as here, maybe bigger and, and, and again, full at this point. Uh, he's there um, and he is teaching. So he's, he's recognized as a rabbi, verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching for he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. I think uh, you can make quite a bit out of this on its own. Uh, What does it mean that Jesus taught as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes? Uh, The short answer is that he made sense. He knew what he was talking about. When he answered and when you check the text, that's what it said. And what the scribes were doing at this time was they were quoting other scribes. So uh, let me let me kind of give a, a good old LCMS example of how this happens naturally, and it's not really evil. So following the Reformation, Luther wrote a lot of stuff, but he didn't write it all down in order. He doesn't have like, here's what Christianity is, my dogmatics. He never did that. Generation later, a guy named Chemnitz comes along, and he kind of takes Luther's theology, and he, he dogmatizes it. He puts it in structure. Yeah, uh, Melanchthon did this as well, by the way, but uh, leave that aside. Uh, he dogmatizes it. So Melanchthon's and then Kenneth's dogmatics are in many ways commentaries on Luther's reading of the scripture. 
Okay. And Luther read the scripture well. It wasn't like he got it wrong all the time. He got it right, like all the time, like regularly. Okay. So, but then Chemnitz comments on what Luther found. And then eventually you have a guy come along named Francis Pieper. He's an American LCMS Christian, 1900s. He writes a whole new dogmatics in which he quotes a whole lot of Chemnitz. Not entirely. He addresses new issues. He finds other great theologians of old, but he kind of comments on what all of they said, and they bring it all together. And, and then there you have Francis Pieper's Christian Dogmatics. But it's three volumes, and it's pretty heady, and it's really not something for laity. And so along came a guy named Mueller, just a generation later, and he took all of the Christian Dogmatics that Pieper had cataloged in three volumes. He put it in one volume. Another guy named Kaler came along after him. He took Mueller, put it in an even smaller volume. But the whole thing is a commentary on a commentary on a commentary on a commentary at a certain point. Just like one of the scribes. Right? Instead of, oh, no, it says this. <laughs> it says this is my body. What do you mean you're a Bible-believing Christian and, and you think the Bible is literal? Uh, and so you think there's helipa uh, Apache helicopters in the book of Revelation, but you don't think this is my body. It means this is my body. Right? The text reigns supreme. Right? And that's how Jesus spoke. He spoke with the text. That's why I think he's quoting the Old Testament all the time. He doesn't have to worry about whether he's right or wrong. <laughs> he's just speaking what the Old Testament says almost every time he opens his mouth. Yeah? And this astonishes the crowds that are there in Capernaum. And verse 23, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Uh, American English, demon. Demon. Okay. Mark will talk about demons, diabolos devils, uh, but the, the use of unclean spirit at the start is, it's a reason to pause. It's kind of it's out of the blue. It's a little weird. Yeah? What's wrong with demons? What makes a demon un, a, a demon? What makes them not a good angel? Would your first answer before this morning have been, well, obviously demons are unclean. I don't think that's a category you would have used to, to talk about demons, right? Dark, scary, fiery, maybe those kinds of things, right? Uh, but unclean. And yet that's the main thing Mark wants us to get out of what's coming up here. It's something unclean, something that doesn't, it's spotted. It's, it's filled with dross. It, it isn't what it's supposed to be. It's not good as it should be. Uh, it's there. Now, where'd this man who was possessed by this unclean spirit come from? And I think you're free to imagine this two different ways. Again, it's going to be helpful probably to try to imagine it's a scenario like our church service right here this morning. And uh, we have a guest preacher who came in, right? And he began preaching the word of God with fire and zeal, but it's all kinds of true. And then suddenly someone stands up in our midst and starts shouting at him from the pew while he's still talking. Now, is this one of us? You can imagine it that way. This person's been here all along. No one knew he was demon-possessed. He never told us, right? Um, or, yeah, um, or uh, it, this is some guy who just wandered in at that moment. Which, I mean, I've, I've been there when we had the downtown location. You'll be, I've, I've been there preaching at St. Paul and like some guy walks in right now and sits down like right there. And he doesn't look like he's in his right mind. I've been there. So um, you pick either one of those. The point is the guy stands up and starts screaming bloody murder, murder in the room on Sunday morning, right? And, and here's what he's going to shout, right? Uh, verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Uh, fun tidbit. 
In the Gospel of Mark, humans, as a rule, don't know Jesus is God unless they're possessed by a demon. It's the Gospel of the Son of God, and yet the one who's going to confess him to be God is going to be this man, possessed by a demon. It'll happen again later. And then you have an exception at the foot of the cross, where a man who is not a Jew, is not a Christian, has no connection with Jesus that we know of, is going to be the one who stabs him through the heart with a spear. He says, that's the Son of God. And I think that's on purpose. I think you're supposed to ask, why does nobody get it except the people who aren't supposed to get it and the demons who tremble? That's kind of the thrust here a little bit. Uh, Remember, this is like an adventure narrative, the way Mark is telling this. And Jesus has come to cast the devil out of creation. So he goes to a church. There's a devil there, and the devil tries to fight back. And he fights back by wanting to create a stir and a distraction. So, frankly, he doesn't even care, in a sense, what he says, so long as it gets everyone else to stop listening to Jesus. And you can imagine that even if someone stood up today, or let's just say a guy wandered in off the street, drunk and out of his mind, he started shouting about, he's shouting to you. He's walking up and down the pews. He's shouting how your pastor is a true prophet of God. Would that make you think I was? Right? Yeah, probably not. Right? So, so that's the demon's game is distraction. Uh, talking with uh, one of our young men from the Hebrew community about demonology in a little resource he was reading uh, this uh, this week. And uh, he had taken some notes. And one of the big notes, is bigger than everything else on the page, was uh, whatever you do, don't talk to them. Right? Demons. Whatever you do, don't talk to them. So you run into a, a situation, that guy's demon-possessed, you think so? Like, don't listen. Stop talking. Why? Because they're only going to lie. They're only going to distract. Even if they tell the truth, it will be to destroy. That's what we see happening here. They're telling the truth to destroy. What's Jesus do? He says, shut up. Be silent. Verse 25. Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent. That sounds so nice. Be silent. It's shut up. Uh, Shut up. Come out of of him. Um, Before we go too far past it, I just want to point out this unique part have you come to destroy us? Um, I believe it's in Luke. So it's, it's not really Mark proper, but it, it, I think it's Luke, not Matthew. Added to this question is uh, before the appointed time. So Jesus just said the time is appointed. But this demon then, he knows at the very least, what is that appointed time? It is the destruction of the demons. And now he sees one. He says, is that what you're going to do? Jesus rebukes him. Be silent. Come out. And verse 26, the opposite of upright, I might point out. The unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And all were amazed so that they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. You remember last week I told you the spirit of Mark is the spirit of authority, madness, violence, and fear. Right? Jesus just demonstrated authority. He looked a little crazy, but so the guy he was up against, right? There was a violent confrontation of words, but it left the guy on the ground trembling and quivering, and everyone else ends up terrified what's going on. Yeah. The Gospel of Mark. Uh, 
It's it's a amazing fast paced ride that we're in the middle of. We're not quite done this morning. We're getting there pretty close. At once, verse twenty eight, his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Right again. Imagine this guy's walking up and down here, shouting about how your pastor is a true prophet of God. And I say, in the name of Jesus, be silent and come out of him. The guy falls down. He gets up. Ten minutes later, he says, "I'm Jim. Can I join the church?" Yeah. News is going to spread. Right? News is going to spread. I, I don't think we should expect this as regular Sunday morning practice. I'm not in any way preaching this as something to look for. The point is, look at Jesus. Where he goes, the demons come out of the cracks and then run away. That's the good news of the Son of God. That's the good news of the end of the world. The end of the world is the end of the demons. That's the good news of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at war against the demons. And though you were their slave, he has bought you with a price put a crown on your head, put his spirit into your heart and said, you don't belong to them anymore. You belong to me. Yeah. That's, that's the gospel, according to Mark. A uh, couple more verses here. Verse 29, they're hearing about what he's doing. Immediately, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So they're all still together. And Simon's mother-in-law, Peter is married, uh, lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. So now it's not just demonic warfare. It's actually warfare against all kinds of suffering. Unless we're to believe that fevers and viruses are the results of demons and angels, which I tend to not think that, but these days, I don't know which story about viruses to believe, and I hope you take that for the joke that it is a little bit. Uh, the point here is, again, that Jesus has power even over a fever. He just tells it. Fever. Hey, get out of here. And the fever does it. Right? That, is, that is supreme authority. Supreme. It's more marvelous than the demon, in a sense. It really is. Yeah? Especially if you believe modern science about fevers and what they, where they come from, right? He told the capillaries to close up a little more and stop spreading so much blood so the body would cool down. Like, wow, that's, that's kind of impressive, right? So, so there's that. Uh, and then uh, there's the nice thing that she does the hospitality thing right away, by the way. Don't miss that. She notices someone's in my house. Maybe they need some food. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, 32, uh, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Now the whole town's like, well, uh, we're going to bring everyone who's had a problem ever and ask for help. 33, the whole city was gathered together at the door. I mean, think about your house filled with people for a party and there's a whole crowd around outside all because some prophet is healing everybody. What a time. Verse 34, he healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Uh, pause story. What happens next is going to involve another healing, um, but also some more confrontations with demons. He, he's, he's brought it up a lot, the, the warfare against the darkness here. 
And I want you to see that again, we're not even through the first chapter. We're nowhere kind of near the slow plotting pace of the other gospels. He's moving at fireball speed, but this fireball is on a direct collision course between the son of God and Satan. And every step of the story along the way, if you stop worrying about what the other stories said and just let it all run together, uh, what you have is, again, an, an action adventure here uh, with a prophet, wily-eyed and crazy, coming under another prophet, wily-eyed, camel-dressed and crazy, who isn't so crazy at all, but it's the right kind of crazy, the crazy that mankind needs in order to be the God mankind needs, to be the man. Mankind needs to be, yeah? And the whole story is going to just keep driving this to the cross. You know that, right? I don't, I don't think I need to preach. And he died this morning to tie all the pieces together for you. Um, but I want you to see that how much the early Mark narrative is, oh, by the way, demons didn't stand a chance. Right? That's the good news of Jesus. And again, he's your God. In the name of Jesus, amen.